Hello, this is Pastor Galen from the First Nazarene Church in Chicago, and welcome to our podcast. Hey, before we hear the message today, I simply wanted to say that no matter where you're at, we're glad that you're listening today. We hope this message will inspire you, instruct you, and help you grow in your relationship with Jesus. And if you live in the Chicagoland area, maybe this is the first step for you joining us in person sometime. Or if you want to, you can always check out our online live services every Sunday on our website at firstnaz.cc. Thanks again for joining us. Enjoy the message. Good morning, church. Good morning. It's good to see you. Thank you so much uh, for being here today. Uh, I am excited to share with you. Just a special welcome, those of you that are here every week. It's always good to see you. Uh, More than that, it's been great to get to know you, know some of your stories, to pray with you, to journey with you uh, through whatever has been going on in your life uh, lately. But also just a special welcome to those of you that last Sunday was your first Sunday. Uh, You came on food truck Sunday. You ate some tacos or barbecue or waited way too long in line for hot dogs and hamburgers. Uh, Enjoyed some time with us. Uh, And you're back this week. I just want to say a special welcome to you. We're excited to have you as a part of our community and our church, and we do want you to feel welcome and at home here with us as well. Like Pastor Phil said, today we're starting this new series called The Purple Kingdom. Uh, And this series, let me just, I'll just say this right up front. Um, In case you haven't noticed by your phone ads, the commercials on TV, if you watch TV or the ads between your show, uh, we are entering into a fun political season. Woohoo. Everybody's excited about that. Nope, not at all. Maybe a little bit. No. Okay. Um, where elections are coming up. And for me, it's fun. Like, oh, hey, young pastor, your second series uh, leading through the church is going to be during the four-year cycle of elections as well. If you could just speak into that, that'd be fantastic. Church, pray for your pastor. It's going to be fun to get emails, have conversations about what is said and what is not said. It's fun. And honestly, I probably could just avoid it and say, hey, we're going to focus on something else. But I do think it's critically important. If we live as followers of Jesus... We're asking the question, how do we live in this country, in this day and age? How does that actually affect our lives? So I would ask you to journey with me through this Purple Kingdom series and say, God, how do I look at what you want for us? I primarily have two main concerns. The first one is this, for you to recognize what is forming you and shaping you. The voices, the influences in your life that are, uh, have got you to believe to what you believe today. And where does Jesus have a role in that, a say in that? Uh, and then secondly, no matter what you think, no matter what you believe, I'm very concerned about how it actually lives out in your life. How do you treat the people around you, the real life embodied people, not the person on the news, not the person yelling on Facebook, no, the actual people that you encounter. How do you treat them? How do your beliefs live out in your life. There was one time where Jesus was asked both, well, there's more than one time, but one time at least where he's asked both a political and religious question. And it's interesting, do these worlds even mix together? Well, yes, because we live in the midst of both. We live in countries that have governing structures, and we believe things about God, and those things overlap for sure. And so these religious teachers or Pharisees come to Jesus with this question, yet their motives were not good. These Pharisees, they do not like Jesus. Jesus has been walking around teaching, telling stories, some of which people love. But also he's telling these stories of like, don't be like these people. And then can tell, uh, tells a story with like a metaphor that not everybody understands. And they're looking at the metaphor like, who's the, who's the who in the story, Jesus? I don't quite understand. 
But the religious teachers then realize, wait a minute, he's telling that story against us. They do not like Jesus. How do we get away with putting Jesus away, pushing him to the side in a way that uh, doesn't look like it's us? Because the crowds love Jesus. How do we get rid of Jesus? Picking up from Luke chapter 20, it says this. As soon as I turn my little magic clicker thingy on, here we go. The teachers of religious law and the leading priests wanted to arrest Jesus immediately, but they were afraid of the people's reaction. So watching for their opportunity, the leader sent spies pretending to be honest men. You gotta love that line when you're like talking about politics. Just kidding. They tried, oh, sorry. They tried to get Jesus to say something that could be reported to the Roman governor so that he would arrest Jesus. Because like we don't want to arrest Jesus or because we want people to like us, but maybe if we can get him to say something, the Roman governor will arrest him instead. So they come to him. Teacher, they said. We know that you speak and teach what is right, and you're not influenced by what others think. You teach the way of God truthfully. I love that. Like, if you're just a teacher, that's great. What we should try to embody as teachers. So now, tell us. Here's the question. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? You're like, well, why is this question a trap? Why Why is this such a big deal? Why is this a difficult question? You see, this is a prime example of a question that sets someone up for a terrible answer. Um, I don't know if you were like me and watched the tragedy of a football game that was Thursday night football this week. Worst football game I've seen in a long time. Uh, And at the end, like, I don't know if this actually happened, but I could see a reporter asking a bad question to Russell Wilson, saying, so did you not see the guy that was wide open that you could have won the game, or did you just not want to throw it to him? Which one? Now, either way he answers that question, it's, well, either I'm a bad quarterback because I didn't see him, or I just don't like the guy, so I didn't throw it to him. It's a terrible, there's not a win in the answer. They ask Jesus this question, because if Jesus says, yes, you should pay taxes to Caesar, the religious side is, no, you can't pay taxes to him, because if you're paying taxes to someone, then you're saying that they are lording over our people, and the Romans believe that they are God, so you're actually honoring another God that's not our God, and Jesus, I don't know if you know the Ten Commandments, we're supposed to honor the Lord your God above all else, have no other idols, so you can't say pay taxes, no. And Jesus, you also can't say the other side, no, don't pay taxes, because if you say don't pay taxes, guess who we're going to go and tell? Oh, we're going to go tell the governor, and then he will come in, and he will arrest you. Gotcha. How does Jesus respond? He saw through their trickery, I love that, and said, bring me a Roman coin, a denarius. Whose image, whose picture and title are stamped on it? He said, look at the coin. Caesar's, they reply. Well then, Jesus says, Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, and give to God what belongs to God. So they failed to trap him by what he said in front of the people. Instead, they became amazed by his answer, and they became silent. Jesus says, bring me the coin, and they look down. It would have looked something like this. Whose image is on it, and what does it say? It would have said this, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. The irony here is so beautiful. Jesus could have been like, well, I am Jesus, the real Lord, son of the divine father. He doesn't say that, but he could. 
And he says, give back to Caesar what is his. And instead of give, it really is a word that means give what is entitled to them. Give it back to them. So this image, when you hear this language, whose picture, whose image is based in it? The religious people would have went back to Genesis because they know their scriptures. Man and woman together are created in the image and likeness of God is the scripture he's referring back to. So give back to God's what is his. He has created you. He has given you life. He has given you his creativity and his image and likeness. You are his. Live your life for him. Jesus is even calling them to a deeper level of discipleship. Give it back to God. His image. I'm going to ask you a, maybe a funny question at first. It's a little silly, but I hope you see what I'm doing with this. The irony of image. Let me ask you, when you picture Jesus, picture him in your mind. What does he look like? What kind of hair, what kind of face, structure. What does Jesus look like? I saw someone's grandma on Facebook that this week said, finally they got an accurate picture of Jesus. He looks like this. No, Grandma, I think that's Obi-Wan Kenobi. You've obviously never seen Star Wars. This is not the dro- a dude you're looking for, Grandma. No, this isn't it. That's not, I don't think it is. The first painting discovered of Jesus, the oldest one we can find today, is from the year 250, so it's still a couple centuries removed of Jesus. But picture a Middle Eastern man, probably shorter than we are today, darker hair, curly hair, brown eyes, Middle Eastern type, Man, But here's what's fascinating to me. I don't know if you like art. I don't know if you like history. If you do, do this this week. It's, it's fascinating. Go throughout history and look at the depictions of how people portray Jesus. And what you'll notice is, first of all, some things are not biblical or scriptural at all. For example, Isaiah 53, you read about this suffering servant who there's nothing in his appearance that would draw us to him, is what the scriptures say. And then you have the Korean statue Jesus over here that looks like this. Is this what Jesus looked like? I don't think they could have nailed this guy down anyway, I'm just saying. Is this what he looks like? When you go through history, this is what you see. Catch this. Throughout history, all of humanity has typically portrayed Jesus to look like them. We make Jesus into our own image, often so that we can adopt, so that Jesus would adopt our mindsets, our attitude, our agendas, our policy, our actions, our beliefs. We make Jesus look like us. You see it in the pictures? You see the Native Americans portray him as a Native American Jesus. When the gospel goes to Africa, to the primarily black places, they portray a black Jesus. We make him look like us. The Nazis in Germany make Jesus look Aryan so that he can look nothing like the Jews. But wait a minute, Jesus was in fact a Jew. The question I want to ask you today is a lot more personal than this. Where have we made Jesus look like us in our life? If the Jesus you believe in exactly aligns with you 100% in everything, I'd ask you to go back and look at the Jesus of the Bible. Because he's supposed to change us and transform us into who he wants us to be. Not so that we make Jesus in our image, so we're being made in his image as we follow him. So the question today, in what ways have I blindly made Jesus into my own image? I say blindly because we often don't realize it at the beginning. 
God, reveal to me where I'm not seeing the world as you would see it. Would you show me what I'm missing? Show me how I need to be remade and reformed into your image. This is true of all of life, but we get the joy of speaking into a political season, and this plays out even in our politics. Say for just a moment, if we will, a little experiment. Let's say you have one perspective and one way of thinking. It has a certain color to it, if you will. And you say, well, Jesus must look like me because, well, Jesus values life, and he does. So Jesus looks like me. Say you might have a different perspective, a different color. No, Jesus looks like me because Jesus cares for the poor and he values them. Look at his teachings. He is like me, and it's true. Jesus does. Also, side note for you, Will Pastor Galen stay up at 9.30 on a Saturday night to spray paint Dollar Tree sunglasses to have an image to stick in your head? Yes, I will. Hope you remember this. Here's what's funny when you spray paint something. You can't see through it. Sometimes we get so blinded by a color that we can't see outside of it. What if God wants us to step back? I see, these are good, good things, and we should participate in them. But I don't think this is the starting point. I think what God wants us to step back, and instead, let me see if I can do this. So I'm, I'm looking at the world, right? What if instead of looking through these lenses at the world first, I want to turn around, and I instead want to turn away from the world, turn this way, and say, God, what is it that you would have for me? Not looking at the world, its structures, its thoughts, its opinions, its culture, its streaming. God, what is it you want from me? I'm reading my Bible. I'm praying. I'm not even doing it alone. I'm gathering in community with others. I'm praising you. I'm worshiping you. I'm reading Christian orthodoxy. Jesus, I want you to form me more than anything. So much so I'm going to put my whole Bible right in my face. Jesus, teach me. So that by the time we turn and look at the world, we see something different. We still see everything that's there, but we see it through a different lens. This is our starting point. Yes, it should play out in other ways because we live in this governmental structure, but it starts here. And here's what I love. When you see life through these lenses, it isn't just a box to check, a vote to cast. Jesus changes all of our lives. So it's not, it's not just, oh, I believe this, I think this. No, it changes how I live. It changes how I serve. It changes how I give. It changes how I love others in generous ways. It affects all of our life. This is the starting point, purple, Jesus' royalty kingdom. If we follow Jesus, we're declaring that Jesus is king. He is Lord. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. He's seated because his power is absolute. He's in authority. We start here and then let that inform the rest of our lives. C.S. Lewis said it this way, aim at heaven and you get both heaven and earth. Aim at earth the things of here and now, then you get neither heaven or earth. For me, as your pastor, I think about this a lot, this question. How are we being shaped and formed? How do we even get to the point where we're thinking of what we're thinking today? How do we get there? Here's my concern as a pastor for our church, for the church in general. Are we being discipled more by Fox News than Scripture? Are we being discipled more by CNN than the red letters of Jesus? Or maybe that's one generation, here's another. 
Are we being influenced more by what we see, by what we stream, by what we share, by what we see while we're scrolling? The answer is yes. We give ourselves an alarming rate of more than five hours a day to media, and most of us don't do five minutes a day of the things of God. And it's a blind spot. We all think we're in the right. We're all ready to go to bat for it. Jesus, reveal to me where I'm not seeing things through your lens. And help me to see the world the way that you do. And help me to follow after you in your kingdom. Maybe today it's just a little self-check. Am I being influenced by God? Am I being formed by the things of Jesus? And maybe for some of you, by the end of this series, you'll say, the most impactful, the most important thing for me was not a Sunday morning, but it was what we did outside of it. I wanted to resource you that during this time, how you can lean into Jesus more. First of all, maybe some of you already saw it when you walked in, is on the tables by the door. You saw the Purple Kingdom Bible Reading Plan. If you're not sure what to read, if you're not already in a Bible reading life group, maybe you do this. Starting tomorrow, you read Luke chapter 1. You read one chapter a day, probably about five minutes. There's questions on the back for reflection. If you follow this, and I built in, I'm a little graceful, I built in some catch-up days. On Sundays, you're not reading anything, so you can catch up there if you need to, if you miss a day or two. If you stick with this plan, you'll notice that on election day, you finish the book of Luke, and you're celebrating Jesus' resurrection, his victory over sin and death and darkness and the establishment of his kingdom uh, that will reign forever and ever. In a time where you're going to be hearing so much noise, what if we instead look to Jesus? Or secondly, you see the suggested reading list. If you want to go a step further, we've compiled a list of great books that deal with religion and politics and how do they mix. Maybe you'd pick a book and you'd order it today on Tuesday. I'm just like assuming that everyone has Amazon Prime at this point. I'm realizing this may not be true. You order it today, you start reading Tuesday, and you pick up a book and dive a little bit deeper. You'll see both of those under Nick's steps today or again by the door on the way out. This is our starting point because we are citizens of the unshakable kingdom. When we believe in Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, and the words of Colossians, that he has disarmed all the powers and authorities, that he reigns forever as king over all creation. We believe in him, and we read these words about what that means for us. He's rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son, who has purchased our freedom and forgiven our sins. So now, you Gentiles, you non-Jews, you are no longer strangers and foreigners to God. No. You are citizens, along with all of God's holy people. You are members of the family of God. We are citizens of heaven, where the Lord Jesus Christ lives. And we are eagerly waiting for him to return as, as our Savior. So the question for us today becomes, how do we live then? We're temporary residents of this land, of this country. But we also, we're living with our citizenship in heaven. There's three verses for this. The first one, above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. Or from Peter, dear friends, I warn you, live as temporary residents and foreigners. Keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very soul. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. So even if they accuse you of doing something wrong, they will see your honorable behavior. We're to live with honor. 
And they will give honor to God when he comes to judge the world. And then maybe just five verses later, my very favorite passage, I'm thinking about adopting it just for myself for this whole series. How do I live in this time in the middle of a political season? I love it because it's short. You can actually memorize it and repeat it. Five verses later, Peter, Peter says this, respect everyone, love the family of believers. We can respect about anybody. Wow, that's a crazy thought. That's a crazy opinion. But I can listen well. I can respect. Ah, but love the family of believers. A step further, we live in love with one another. When I think of foreign residents living with citizenship in heaven, for me, I can't help but to think about the early church. I want you to picture, if you can, for a moment, the time that they would have been living in. Um, there was a great movie that came out, uh, well, I haven't seen it now for a long time, I remember it as being great at least, 22 years ago, which when it hit its 20th anniversary, I was like, how am I this old? That was yesterday. How did this happen? The movie starred one Russell Crowe, based in Rome. Anybody know it? It's called The Gladiator. You remember that one? Picture the power of Rome, and I think you can see it in that movie. You picture these people that have to fight for their life, the power of a nation that is so absolute it's over an entire region, the power of one man as Caesar that can go like this and people live or die. Take that on one side. Now on the other side, take a small group of people, like 10, 15, 20, gathered in someone's home, eating a meal together, breaking some bread, drinking some wine, saying, no, Caesar's not Lord, Jesus is Lord. You look at those two and you'd almost laugh. Which one has more power? Oh, really? Jesus is Lord? Look what Caesar's doing. You're huddled in someone's backyard. You really think Jesus is Lord? Do you see the picture? But if you know your church history, this small sect of Jesus followers, these believers in God, live in such a way, it's not just about what they believe, it's how they live, that in 300 years, Christianity becomes the dominant religion of the empire. It defeats the paganism and it actually adopts Christianity as its accepted religion. How did you get there from 300 years to Christianity, quote-unquote, overthrow the Roman government? I love this. I want to read this to you. It's good. The late Dr. Larry Hertuto, a historian of early Christianity, wrote a wildly celebrated book called Destroyer of the Gods that tells this story. His thesis, it wasn't the church's relevance or relatability to the culture, but its difference and its distinctiveness, its distinctive features. It sets it apart and made it so compelling to many. The church was marked by five distinct things that were wildly different than the culture. And go with me for a moment, not in today's world, but back to the early church. This was how they lived in opposition, different and distinct to the, to the uh, culture around them. Five things. First, the church was multiracial and multi-ethnic with a high value for diversity, equality, and inclusion. In that day and age, if you don't look like me, if you don't talk like me, if we're not from the same place, I have nothing to do with me. You are my enemy. I don't want you. Instead, the early church said, well, Jesus is Lord. He's calling all nations to himself. You declare Jesus is Lord. You come be a part of us too. Secondly, the church spread across socioeconomic lines as well. And there was a high value for caring for the poor. Those with extra were expected to share with those with less. The Roman uh, colonies, the Roman reign, everyone do what you can, but what you get is entitled to you. You live as you want to live as long as you don't make Caesar angry or the gods angry. You can do whatever you want to do. 
But the Christians said, no, we care about all people. We're expected to share what we have with others. You know how the poor were fed? Um, little side note, this is so good. In church history, the first 300 years, communion was not like you walk into church, you grab your little cup, make sure you shake it up, take off the little thing, bread, juice, done. Do you know what the Lord's Supper was? It was the love feast. You'd, you'd gather in someone's backyard and have a full-blown weekly dinner. And so they're eating, they're celebrating. This is the story of Jesus' body broken, his blood poured out for us. We're sharing the gospel through this meal. And the poor people heard there's free food there. I'll be there. And as they come, they hear the story of Jesus. They become a part of the community. Number three, it was staunch in its active resistance to infanticide and abortion. Can I tell you really fast that there was no voting? Oh, I'm going to vote for Caesar this year. No, Caesar, Caesar. He has his power. There's no voting involved. So what does this mean? In the Roman day and age, if they uh, became pregnant with a child that they did not want, or they would have the baby and it was not the gender they wanted, or they decided they couldn't feed the baby, they would take the baby to the garbage dump and place it there with trash. The Christians would walk out of their houses, walk to the garbage dump, pick the baby up, and walk home with it, and raise it as their own. The culture began to say, who does that? Who does this? You don't have enough as is. You're taking them in too? They were different. It was resolute in its vision of marriage and sexuality as between one man and one woman for life. The Roman culture, do whatever you want to. Who cares? I think today we often think we're in the most progressive, desensitized kind of culture that has ever existed. You read history, you learn that that's not true. Oh, we're going to worship all these gods and we have different temples and we're going to have orgies in public in those temples as a sacrifice to those gods. Like, what? That sounds wild and different. Yet the Christian said, no, I believe in this God that is revealed in Scripture that says, one man, one woman for life. The fidelity that happens there, the safety and sacredness, the security for a family, this is the best way to live. They didn't have to, they chose to. They showed the world maybe a, way that it, a better way that attracted the world to it. And finally, it was nonviolent, both on the personal level and on the political level. They're not living in this Roman world, not like Peter, I'm going to take this sword and just cut off their ear. No, it was like Jesus. Hey, I'm going to believe in this Jesus. Crucify me if you want to, but I'm going to be raised with Jesus anyway. It doesn't matter even if you kill me, I'll be raised with him in the end anyway. So they practice nonviolence violence. It's fascinating. When you look at all five of these things, and let me just say this, none of these are off-centered for Christian. None of these are fringe. None of these are boundary. This was basic Orthodox Christianity and the early church. This is what it means to live and to follow Jesus. Can I remind you for a second? What's the work of the enemy? To deceive, to destroy, to divide. So what if he could divide us in such a way where we become so busy yelling at each other that we never actually begin to do the things that God has called us to do? To love God, to love others, to serve the world with the same love that God has served us with. Because when you plot these five things, now we took it from ancient Rome, put them in 2022. When you plot these things in our political structure, our political system, here's what you get. The first two look a little bit more liberal-leaning. They deal with race, equality, and class, making sure the poor have enough. You look at the next two, they look more like conservative topics. We value life and marriage and sexuality. And let's be real, this last one, nonviolence, nobody's doing that. 
we yell, we fight, we argue. No one's really practicing this. What would it look like for the church to embody good news of all five? This is grand level big, but now can I make it just personal for you today? I ask you this, are you different? Are you distinct from the culture? And in those differences, does it actually point people to Jesus? Are we living in such a way, like, why don't you participate in this? Why don't you do that? Why are you different in these ways? Do we use that opportunity to tell them about it? Well, I don't because I follow Jesus. And here's what I believe about following Jesus. He's made and created life. If he's the maker of life, I trust him that he knows the best way to live life. As I follow him, his spirit produces love and joy and peace. This is why I live this way. It's our opportunity. And could I just for a moment go down through those five things? What if the church became so good at welcoming other people that don't look like us that the rest of the world would notice and that those people would know our welcome, our love, and our acceptance of them, point them to Jesus, and they may begin to encounter Jesus too. You go to the second one. What if we as the church became the people who love the poor so well that the government would look at what we're doing and say, wow, we really need to pattern our way of living after that as it actually happened in the early church. Number three, what if we became a people that loved so well within our marriages. We gave a better picture for what marriage looks like between a man and a woman for life, that that is the healthy, uh, sacred boundaries of sanctity of where sexuality lives. And when it's done right and it's done well, this is the best way to live life. Could we give the world a better picture for what it looks like? Or fourth, what if the Christians became so good at fostering and adopting babies, not just vote with their a ballot, but vote with our feet, what if we became so good at it that when someone who is terrified, scared, or even in the most horrendous of situations could see what the church is doing and say, I'm not really sure what I think about all of this, but I know those people could raise my baby and choose adoption instead. What if we could do that? Or finally, what if we became the people that were nonviolent? Honestly, we live in, as Hebrews says, the unshakable kingdom of God. It's the only political structure that has reigned since the time of Jesus and will forevermore. So we don't have to react and respond like the rest of the world. I don't have to get super upset and angry because, ah, no, Jesus reigns. Even if you persecute me, even if you kill me, I'll be raised with him again. It changes how we react and respond. What if our love as the church became the beacon of safety and grace of individualistic and societal transformation. See, I, I believe in our system. Let me just say I'd rather live here than anywhere else in the world. But ultimately, where is our hope? These things can change things externally, but there's a different hope. Jesus is the hope that can change from the inside, internally, for me, for my family, for my community. Jesus is the hope of the world in and through the local church. What if we live in that reality? So even if we're different, here's our, our rally cry, our unifying anthem. Together as the church, we say, Jesus is Lord. Somebody said it with me. All right, you're participating. I love it. Jesus is Lord. He is our king. He is the one that we follow, a king over all. This may help some of you, it may not. If not, that's okay, throw it away. When you, uh, if you remember like junior high history class, the different political structures, ours is a democracy. 
Uh, there's two, I want you to think of these, a limited monarchy, so king or queen, but they're limited by the constitutional laws of the land, so they have to abide by them, they have to obey them, or an absolute monarchy. This is king or queen, and their power and their word is absolute. When they speak something, it becomes law. Think about that. As soon as I say that, it's a little scary. Um, our opening life group question for our message reflection groups this week is, if you were an absolute monarch, if you could say anything and it became law, what would you speak into existence? Kansas City Chiefs win, no matter what the score is. Every time they walk off the field, the Chiefs get the victory. Like, what would it be? It's scary for us to give that much power to one person. I want you to hear these words of Charles Spurgeon. The personal rule of one individual would be the best form of government if that individual were perfectly good, infinitely wise, and abundant in power. And the reason why an autocrat turns into a despot is that there is no man who is perfectly good, unselfish, and wise. There is, however, thanks be to God, one king whose power we do not wish in any degree to limit or to circumscribe. God has no fault or failing, and therefore it is a joy that he does according to his will. He never wills anything that is not strictly just. And the exercise of absolute sovereignty, he's neither unjust nor unmerciful. It is not possible for him to err, and therefore it is a great subject for joy that the Lord reigns. He is clothed in majesty. Jesus is king. We can trust him. He's good. He is wise. He's just. He is merciful. And he is loving. Jesus is Lord. I want you to see this. Jesus is Lord. Maybe if you haven't been a Christian that long or you haven't been around church that often, normally we think of Jesus as Savior. Well, this is the Jesus who has come and saved me from my sin. He has saved me from the old ways of living. He has saved me from my addictions and my destructive patterns, and he has saved me and made me new. And that's all true. But as you continue to follow Jesus and he keeps saving you, normally there comes a point where he speaks to you and says, yes, I have saved you, but are you willing to surrender to make me Lord of your life? Are you willing to recognize and say, no, Jesus is king in my life. He is Lord. So the posture is this. God, no matter what it is, no matter what you say, no matter where I go, where you would call me to go, no matter what you call me to do, no matter who you call me to go and serve, the answer is yes. I put my life at your feet. You are my Lord. I surrender. I kneel. I bow. Whatever it is you want me to do. Have you had this moment in your life? For me, I was 19 years old, weeping on my apartment floor, felt God saying, Galen, if you're going to follow me, I need you to surrender everything. I need to be Lord of your life. And frankly, this is when God called me to ministry. The reason I was weeping is because I didn't want to. I said, no, I don't want to do that. Jesus, I want to live where I want to live. I want to do what I want to do. I don't want to go be a pastor. I want to go be an investment broker. I want to make a ton of money and live the kind of lifestyle I want to live. I don't want to do it. But yet, Jesus, if you have made me, if you have created me, if you have called me, I know if I do anything else, I'm going to be miserable. So I surrender to your lordship. Jesus, you are Lord, and I follow you. Have you done that? Or maybe some of you, you did it 20 years ago, but here's what I know. You keep living in relationship with him, he'll point out another area. Yeah, but what about this? No, I want you to do this. Are you still willing to trust me as Lord, even when you don't understand, even when you don't see the future? Are you trust me? We have to say, I surrender 
again. Could you do that today? This is about Jesus. You have free reign in my life. Over the next few weeks, we'll look at what the kingdom of God looks like from Jesus' perspective, this purple kingdom. We'll be reading the stories of Jesus saying, well, the kingdom of God is like, and saying something. How do we live in following and disciples of Jesus in this world and in this time? This week, here's what I want you to do. I want you to reflect on these questions, the questions that we have asked today. If you're taking notes, write them down. Some of you, I've already seen it in this service. You take pictures of what's on the screen because you don't write fast enough. I see the flashes every now and then. It scares me a little bit. Maybe you take a picture, and this week you come back to these questions. In what ways have I blindly made Jesus in my image? How am I being shaped and formed? What are my influences? What do I need to do to live differently and distinctly? Have I surrendered to Jesus as Lord? Today, to end this time together, we're going to say together the Lord's Prayer. And as we do, this is about recognizing, first of all, this is his kingdom. Your will be done. Your kingdom come here on earth as in heaven. Yours be the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. We're aligning ourselves with him. Secondly, entering into this next time, this is about us as a church being unified. We say our Father, the Father that has made us into a family We may not all agree, but Jesus, we recognize you are our Father, you are our Lord, and this is your kingdom. Secondly, some of you already saw this on the Connect card. You saw it at the very bottom. If you would be willing to pray this prayer in your home this week, could you make praying this prayer a part of your life, of your daily life during this time? If you're willing to do that, even if you've already filled out the Connect card, I want you to go back, fill out again, and if you simply want to write in your address, I'm not going to share that address. I'm not going to mail you anything. What I want to do is create a, I want to plot a map of where we as a church are praying the Lord's Prayer in our communities, here on earth as it is in heaven. So we're praying for the kingdom to come. If you're willing and able, as we say this together, would you stand with me? Would you stand with me? Some of you grew up where you grew up saying this prayer and your language is a little different, and that's okay. You say it as you grew up. Some of you grew up just repeating this and you haven't actually thought about the words in years. Some of you grew up saying it in a droning voice. Could you say this with life and vitality as our prayer together as a church? Again, what unifies us in in recognizing his kingdom. Would you say this with me? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us today our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those that trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Would you pray with me? God, in this time, we long and we look to follow you. God, would you shape us and form our opinions, our thoughts, our beliefs, because we've been looking at you. Help us to lean in in these days, maybe more than any other time, to your kingdom, your lordship, your kingship, and how we live in your kingdom, how we follow you as disciples. May it actually change and affect the way that we live, that we would love you and love and serve those around us, our neighbors, our coworkers, the people that we meet. May they see a distinct and different 
difference within us because of your love. And when they ask us about us, give us the courage to point them back to you. God, I think of the person here today that maybe has never said it or needs to say it again. Jesus, I say you are Lord of my life. I surrender to you. Whatever you want for me, I'm yours. Whatever job, whatever future, whatever spouse or not, I am yours. Do with me what you will. Speak to me. Let me see your purposes for my life and help, you, help me to follow you all the days of my life. Jesus, change us, transform us into the people you have called us to be. Jesus, speak a better word. Because of your cross, we are forgiven. We're not ashamed. We've been made new. We love you and others. Continue to speak this better word over us. We love you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. Hey, thanks again for joining us for the First Naz podcast. If you're interested in what your next step in growing your relationship with God might look like, I'd encourage you to visit us at firstnaz.cc engage, or you can download our app from the app store, First Nazarene Church. And there you can let us know if you've made a decision for Jesus, or you can also find practical resources to help you grow closer to Jesus. I'd also invite you to subscribe to the podcast if you're not already to make sure that you've always got the latest content. And if you want to, feel free to share this on your social accounts. You never know who else might need to hear today's message as well. Well, thanks again for joining us. Have a great day.